Well, may that wonderful singing this morning lead us into a prayerful, contemplative study of the Word of God this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we find ourselves this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, our first point this morning is the importance of unity. The title of this message is The Critical Importance of Biblical Church Unity. And more so than most messages, I carefully chose each word in in this title. We are talking this morning about the importance of biblical church unity. Ephesians 4.3 is a verse that all of us should have etched in our minds. I don't know how many of you here this morning have ever heard a message on Ephesians 4.3, and we'll be looking at all six verses, but this is a verse that all of us ought to be familiar with. This is a verse that all of us ought to have on our minds and on our tongues, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, as we talk about unity this morning, I want to qualify something as we begin. Very important. There is a wrong kind of unity. Anytime Christians want unity at the expense of the authority of Scripture, it is a wrong kind of unity. It's interesting, in this month, August, August of 1948, an organization started, was developed, called the World Council of Churches. They had a noble intention. They wanted to bring together all Christians around the world in unity together. Unfortunately, over the years, the World Council of Churches, in order to embrace the many liberal theological churches that are out there around the world in order to have some semblance of man-made human unity they began to water down the word of God and to deny some of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith as the world council of churches moved through the years they began to involve themselves in left-leaning political causes. And if you grew up in the, area, in the era that I did, all you ever heard about the World Council of Churches was negative and critical, and understandably so. They are a perfect example of the failed attempt of people to try to create unity among Christian churches. 
And even today, the World Council of Churches is very active and very controversial. That's not the kind of unity I am talking about this morning. That is not the kind of unity that is found in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. I also want to say something else that is sensitive and important. There may be some of you here this morning, and you are here at First Baptist Church because you left a church or a denomination because it was drifting in a liberal theological direction. There may be some of you here that have left a church or a denomination because they were teaching more of the traditions of men than the Word of God. And so, and for some of you, I know this may have been difficult, even painful, you left that denomination or you left that church to come to a church like ours. Sometimes that happens. For the health of our own Christian life, sometimes we have to depart from those kinds of churches. We are not talking about that this morning. That is not the kind of unity we are talking about. Sometimes it is necessary to depart from those who have departed from the Word of God. Rather, we are talking about a supernatural unity that God has created among all believers around the world, all true believers, those who are genuinely born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, among all of us, all true believers around the world, God has given us a supernatural unity. There are two words that I want you to focus on in verse 3. They are eager and maintain. We are to be eager, we are to be diligent, we are to be striving to maintain what God has created. And I want to say this so emphatically this morning, we cannot create, generate, manufacture, or produce man-made unity among us. The unity we have is already ours through the bond of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to be eager to maintain, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul is speaking of the inner and universal unity of the Holy Spirit by which every true believer is bound to every other true believer. So if you know Christ is your Savior, if there's been a point in your life where you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone and His death and resurrection for your salvation, then you are part of this supernatural unity created by God Himself. So, We are bound together right now as we meet today with every other true believer around the world. And that unity expresses itself and is lived out in local churches. Let me say that again. We are bound universally in a supernatural unity with all true believers around the world. And that unity expresses itself and is lived out in local churches. Churches, whether it be a church in Ephesus or Philippi or Colossae or Thessalonica or in Rome or in the regions of Galatia or in St. John's, Michigan. We live out, we express 
what is already ours in Christ. Let me make this statement, and everything, everything else in this message really flows from this. Spiritual unity is not and cannot be created by the church. It is already created by the Holy Spirit. Okay, let me say that again. Spiritual unity is not and cannot be created by the church. It is already created by the Holy Spirit. The unity of the church is a gift from God. And maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace should be the diligent and constant concern of every believer. This is all over the New Testament. All over. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 19, Paul writes, Let us, believers, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification means to build up a fellow believer, to encourage a fellow believer. Here's your command. As a child of God, as one redeemed by Christ, let us therefore make every effort, every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I have spent the last two weeks in messages out of the last part of Ephesians 3, talking about the importance of the glory of God. God's eternal purpose is to bring glory to himself. God's eternal pur purpose is to bring glory to himself. We are to live for the glory of God. We are to do everything for the glory of God. As Paul prayed for us in that prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, it says that we may glorify God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's it. May God be glorified in his church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 15 and verses 5 through 7, Paul says it this way. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live, now watch this, grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together, now watch this, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. Oh, folks, we must maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace so that with one voice, as one people, we may week, week, excuse me, week in and week out, day by day, glorify God. Know this. Know this. God creates unity. People cause division and conflict. God has given us unity, we cause division and conflict. In true Bible teaching and Bible believing churches, if you see or hear about a congregation where there is division and strife and conflict, it's not God's doing, it's the people's doing. And let me say this. When there is division and strife and conflict in a Bible-believing church, 
the vast majority of time, I would say more than 90% of the time, it is because of personal preferences and opinions, not because of the essential teachings of the Word of God. It is because our personal preferences and our opinions take precedence over the teaching of the Word of God. And I say this to you in love this morning. Beware. Beware of being the person who causes division and conflict in a local church. Beware of causing strife and division in a local church. And here's why. Because it grieves the heart of God. When we are not unified, when we start bickering over our preferences and bickering over our human opinions, the heart of God is grieved. Well, that's the overarching theme of this message this morning. Now, I want to back up just a little bit. We have obviously moved from chapter 3 to chapter 4, but this is more than a move from one chapter to another. It is a very important transition in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4.1 marks the transition from positional to practical truth, from doctrine to duty, principle to practice. This is very common in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He has the first part of the book is, here's who you are in Christ. Here's the doctrine. Doctrine simply means the teaching of Scripture. Here is the teaching of the gospel of who you are in Christ. Then he'll transition to the second part of the book. Now, Live that out. Live out who you are in Christ. Live out your position in Christ. Live like the person that God has created you and redeemed you to be. For example, we see this profoundly in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans are about here is the gospel. Here is who you are in Christ. Here's who you used to be and here is who you are now in Christ. And then in chapters 12 through 16, it's now live it out. Live like the person that God has redeemed you and saved you to be. And that's where we're at in the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has set forth the believer's position with all the blessings, honors, and privileges of being a child of God Think back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, which some, kind of sums up the first three chapters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise God for who you are and all that you possess in Christ. Now in the next three chapters, he gives us our responsibilities as children of God in order that we might live out our salvation for the will of God and for the glory of God. That's what chapters 4 through 6 are about. Living out who you are in Christ for the will of God and the glory of God. The first three chapters set forth truth about the believer's identity in Christ. The last three call. They call us for a practical or call us to live in practical response to what we have now learned. And that leads us to our second point this morning, and that is live worthy of your calling. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 can be defined 
by the last part of Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You want to know what chapters 4 through 6 are all about? Here's the summary sentence. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In verse 1 he says, I therefore, therefore, based on the first three chapters, as, a, or I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, Paul identifies himself again in the book of Ephesians as a prisoner of the Lord. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, where he said he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So I won't spend a lot of time on this, that this morning. I, I did that in the last chapter. However, let me summarize by saying that Paul was literally, physically imprisoned at this time when he wrote the book of Ephesians. So he's physically imprisoned, but he was not a prisoner of Caesar. He was not a prisoner of Rome. He was not a prisoner of the Jews. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. All of his allegiance, all of his loyalty belonged to Christ. In fact, the reason he was physically imprisoned is because he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he starts out this way. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know, as you read verse 2, if you read it slowly, if you meditate upon it, there's kind of a soothing effect to it, and there's supposed to be. That is the tenor, the tone, what we would call the biblical mood of the text, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. And the word all at the beginning of verse 2 modifies every word, not just humility. With all humility, all gentleness, all patience, and all love. You know what? It means to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It means to be a humble person. Humbled that you, an undeserving, unworthy, sinful person, have been blessed so richly in Christ. Humility has been called the foundational character trait of the entire Christian life. One person called it the first, second, and third essential of the Christian life. John Wesley once said that the Greeks and the Romans had no word for humility because they were such arrogant and proud cultures. And to be humble to be meek in any way they saw as a weakness and they saw it as something to be avoided. Oh, not so among the children of God. Everything we do is to be characterized by humility. What is humility? We could define it in a number of ways, but let me say it this way. It is laying aside your rights for the glory of God and the good of others. It is laying aside your personal rights for the glory of God and for the good of others. Well, not only are we to be humble, we are to be gentle. Gentleness, as you know, is a fruit 
or part of the fruit of the Spirit. It cannot be produced humanly. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. Oh, folks, we are to be gentle with one another. We are not to be harsh. We are not to be abrasive. We are not to be obnoxious. We are to be gentle. The word gentle has a beautiful word picture. It is the picture of a beautiful horse, of a wild stallion, who is so majestic and so powerful, and yet, when it is broken, when it is tamed, it is gentle. You can pet it. You can ride on it. And although it has all this power, it is power for all the right reasons. It is a power contained in gentleness. Let me ask you this morning. Would other people describe you as gentle? I'm not asking you what you think about yourself. But would the people who know you best say she is gentle he is gentle, with all humility, gentleness, and patience. We are to be patient with one another. Here's the thought with patience. We are to constantly understand that we are fallen, sinful people, saved by the grace of God. We're at different points, different markers in our spiritual journey sometimes we say things we shouldn't say sometimes we do things we shouldn't do but we're patient we're patient with one another and we exhibit patience in all of our relationships so it says with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love this flows directly from chapter 3 at the end where Paul prays for us remember what he prayed for us how he prayed for the Ephesian believers and subsequently prays for us that we would be rooted and grounded in love not human love but in the love of Christ he said oh I want you to have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of that love. The love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. I want you to bear with one another with that supernatural love that we have in Christ. So, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. Then comes, then comes verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the thought. Humility gives birth to gentleness. Gentleness gives birth to patience. Patience gives birth to bearing with one another in love. And all four of these characteristics maintain the unity of of the spirit and the bond of peace. It is the picture of a church in all of its sinfulness, in all of its weaknesses and all of its failings, yet being humble and gentle and patient, bearing with everyone, bearing with each other 
in love, eager, so eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's why this is so important. These virtues and the supernatural unity to which they testify are the most powerful testimony that a church can have. Let me say that again. These virtual virtues and the supernatural unity to which they testify is the most powerful testimony that we can have because we are here in the midst of a world that is filled with sinful attitudes and disunity. All over the world there is conflict. In our own nation right now, there is intense mean-spirited conflict and the church is to be set apart as different. We are to be different in the midst of our culture, in the midst of the world in which we live in. You see, there is no program, there is no church program, no church method, no matter how carefully planned or executed, that can open the door to the gospel the way that we can when we are genuinely demonstrating unity in the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. There is no program out there. There is no method out there. We can buy some fancy, expensive church program intended to bind us together, but we can't do it. It is a supernatural unity that is a gift from God. And when we maintain our unity in Christ, it opens the door for the gospel. It opens the door for the gospel because we are genuinely demonstrated something that can only come from God, that can only come from the Holy Spirit. You think about our missionaries as they go out to the far reaches of the world. And they minister to people who are filled internally, who are filled in their families, who are filled in their tribes and cities and countries with conflict and hopelessness. And they display humility, gentleness, patience, and love, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What a powerful presentation of the gospel. You are so different than those around you. I want you to listen carefully how Paul tells the same truth to those at Colossae. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Listen carefully. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, now watch this, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love. Now watch this. Which binds them all together in perfect unity. Complete parallel with Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Well, that leads us directly 
to verses 4 through 6. And I want to take verses 4 and 5 first. Verses 4 and 5 are known as the double triad and help us to understand why maintaining the unity of the Spirit is so important. There are two groups of three here. And as you listen to these, it's as if Paul is saying, when you understand who we are, when you understand the Christian faith, when you understand biblical truth, how can you not be unified? Verses 4 and 5, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. This is what we've been learning about in Ephesians, the end of Ephesians 2 through Ephesians chapter 3. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles come together as one new man. We are the body of Christ. We are truly the true church bound together with all of our brothers and sisters around the world. The truly redeemed, regenerated, born-again believers all around the world form one beautiful body, the body of Christ, the family of God. Folks, we are one body. One Spirit, notice again, it is a capital S, it is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, applying Christ's salvation to our lives and also supernaturally places us into the body of Christ and gives us supernatural unity. We are one body with one Holy Spirit. We have one hope. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We all have the same exact hope. It is our hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has saved us from our sins, has caused us to be adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1, it has caused us to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1 through 3, it has given us a great and marvelous, eternal inheritance in Christ. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our one Lord. He is our master. He is our savior. He is our king. He is our all in all. He is the one to whom we bow the knee and give full allegiance. The church only has one Lord. It is Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. One faith. One faith. There is one body of teaching. There are not many forms of Christianity. There is one Christianity and it is found clearly in the pages of God's authoritative, inerrant, infallible word and in that alone. Jude, Jude 3 said, I appeal to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints that's our faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
We were all, when we were saved, the Holy Spirit entered our lives. In essence, at conversion, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit who then baptizes you into the body of Christ. And it is symbolized by water baptism. And that's by why water baptism has always been and always will be so important to the church. When we baptize someone, we said they died to Christ and have been raised to live a new life. Baptism is simply a symbol, water baptism, but it is a critically important symbol because it is the outward symbol of an inward reality that has already taken place in your life. You have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, baptized into the body of Christ. One body. One spirit. One hope. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. And then Paul kind of crescendos in this section in verse 6. And he says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is all because of the triune Trinitarian God that we serve that so reveals and identifies himself in the pages of Scripture. The Father planned our salvation. The Son accomplished our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies Christ's salvation to our lives. Oh, there is one God and Father of all. He is over all. He is sovereign over all things. He is through all. He is omnipotent over all things. And he is in all. He is omniscient. He is ever-present. All of the earth belongs to him. And we, as his redeemed people, are to express that and testify to that as we live out our lives on this earth until he takes us home. And the thought here is, how can you not be unified? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, my prayer for us as a church. It's at First Baptist Church of St. John's. That we would be so eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, part of this church family, let us, let us lay aside our personal preferences. Let us lay aside our opinions. And let us eagerly seek the unity of the Spirit for the glory of God and for the cause of the gospel to the farthest reaches of the, excuse me, to the farthest reaches of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help this church to maintain the beautiful, glorious unity that you have provided for us. I pray that all of our lives would be characterized every day in our families, in our work relationships, and especially as a church family. May, it be, may we be characterized by humility, by gentleness, 
by patience and by love. Eager, oh Lord, help us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.